This sun-barbered morning, the Milligan lay full length on the grass, head against the wall, his eyes lost in the shadow of his cap. I think, he reflected, I think I'll bronze me limbs. He rolled his trousers kneewards, revealing the like of two thin white hairy affairs of the leg variety. He eyed them with obvious dissatisfaction. After examining them, he spoke out loud. Holy God, what are these then, eh? He looked around for an answer. What are they? He repeated angrily. Um, legs. Legs? Whose legs? Um, yours. Mine? And who are you? I'm uh, the author. Author? Did you write these legs? Yes. Then I don't like them. I don't like them at all. I could have written better legs myself. Did you write your legs? Uh, no. Ah, so you got someone else to write your legs, someone who's a good leg writer, and then you write this pair of crappy old legs for me? Well, mister, it's not good enough. <laughs> regular listeners will know I was obsessed with the Goon Show and its principles for a four or five year period in my late teens and pretty much any spare time I had was spent uh, listening to the show or watching Sellers films or generally mooching around secondhand shops on the lookout for books, records or tapes. Uh, Then I started going out with girls and socializing more often and gradually I found I was requiring my Goons fix less frequently than before. Plus, I was developing a greater love for music, and a lot of my disposable income was being used to grow a sizable CD collection. I never gave up on the goons completely, of course, but I was less inclined to seek out the latest BBC release as I would have been a few years earlier. And my membership of the Goon Show Preservation Society lapsed, and pretty much that was that. It's only been in recent years that I have started walking out again with Sellers, Milligan, Seekin, and Benteen, and voila! a podcast was born. But for most of my late 20s and early 30s, until kids came along and ruined everything, I was a voracious reader of fiction and would read everything I could. Uh, Coleridge was the last man of whom it was said he'd read every book ever written, and although a fair few more had been published since his death, I was having a fair stab at doing something similar. Uh, I didn't manage it. But an an author whose books I always bought was Jonathan Coe, who is my guest this week. Jonathan was a huge admirer of the work of Spike Milligan, specifically his books and Pakun in particular. We talked about that and a lot more in what I hope you will find is an entertaining conversation. Jonathan, thank you for for joining me today. My pleasure. Great pleasure. Uh, If all goes well, if this is going out on schedule, which is hopefully going to be early November... Um, it's going to be literally, this This podcast will be out literally days before the publication of your latest novel, Bourneville. That's um, uh, that's right, yeah, which comes out on November the 3rd. There we go. So I think this will be one or two days before that. And Not one of my uh, more comic novels, I have to say. But, oh, okay. Uh, okay. But, uh, it's a kind of state of the nation piece, which uh, leads me a bit more in the direction of tragedy than comedy at the moment. But anyway. I mean, obviously, I haven't read it yet. Um, I gather, though, from little hints that I've seen that recent events will have will have got quite a bearing on some of the themes of the novel. Is, is that right? Uh, well, there's a lot about the uh, the royal family in it, if that's what you're, yeah. if that's kind of yeah. what you're hinting at. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's structured around a series of kind of uh, royal moments, really, like the uh, the coronation, the wedding of Charles and Diana, the death of Diana, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. There's uh, there's a little bit of unintended topicality, I guess. And, and so, why Bourneville? What's what's the where does the title come from? Uh, Bourneville is a kind of uh, garden city suburb of uh, Birmingham, where mm-hmm. the where Cadbury uh, has always had its factory, and it was where my mother was born and grew up. And um, and the book is kind of uh, the, the 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 main female protagonist of the book is based on my mother who died during lockdown so it's it's a celebration of her 
uh, life as much as it is a kind of story of the country from from 1945 to 2000. Okay, okay, yeah, because I, I at first I thought it may be part of the Benjamin Trotter saga. Again, well, I'm... it's about a family who uh, who are actually cousins of the Trotters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one of the trotters, Paul, does uh, does make an appearance in the book, so, and they're kind of talked about in the background, but they're not uh, they're not at the centre of it by any means. Yeah. So you say it's a state of the nation novel. That's in keeping, I guess, with some of your previous works. I would say that I think it's fair to say that a lot of your well, okay, the first book of yours that I read was The Rotters Club, which I absolutely mm. adored. And I think that must have been what two thousand and one, something like that. And um, exactly, yep, two thousand and one. Uh, and then I, I remember going on a cruise soon after, and I bought what a Calavap off the back of reading Rotters, the Rotters Club. And it's the, the what a Calavap I love as well, but it seemed, um, it seemed a little bit more, if you don't mind me saying, a little bit more vicious, a little bit more biting in its, yeah. in its satire. It's a real sort of scathing indictment of Thatcher's Britain, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and it's a very uh, it's it's very much a satirical novel, whereas uh, the Ross Club and the other books around it are more in the vein of kind of family sagas, I suppose, kind of stories of ordinary people in the suburbs of Birmingham who, uh, with the kind of big political events of the era happening in the background, whereas in uh, in What a Carve Up, the focus was much more strongly on um, on politics. Okay. And I, know I want to come back to, to talk about some of your books in, in more detail, um, but but I've asked you, I asked you to come on because, you know, as I say, being a big admirer of yours, but I know that you are a, a big comedy fan. You grew up watching sitcoms during the sort of, I suppose you call it the golden era of the yeah. 1970s. And and I know you you discovered um, Spike Milligan in, 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 in his books, Pakun and Adolf Hitler, My Partner's Downfall in particular. And they, uh, yeah, that's of, right. I mean, I, I was... Um... Even though I, I wound up uh, being a novelist, um, I wasn't a very bookish child or a bookish teenager, and we didn't have a lot of books in the house. Actually, you know, my uh, my mum read crime novels, Agatha Christie, and so on. My my father would read those big kind of blockbusters okay. which were around at the time, um, Alistair MacLean, yeah. Arthur Haley, yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. There was a there was there was a complete sort of dickens in our family but nobody read it it was it was just kind of there for show like a lot of uh, middle class families had I, I guess and the two things that obsessed me were pop music and uh, comedy um and uh yeah i mean comedy i suppose was something that i don't remember my dad ever watching much tv comedy or listening to much radio comedy but my, my mother was kind of into it or introduced me to it. The, the earliest show really I can remember us getting excited about. Well, we watched The Likely Lads in the mid-60s, oh, yeah. the old, uh, the original black and white series. And I remember uh, loving that. But then I think the thing that first kind of really grabbed me, which was very Milligan-esque in a way, was Marty Feldman's show of the late 1960s. Oh, right. Um, which I think was just called Marty. I can't. Can't yeah, remember actually. It, it's Marty, is it? I, don't, I think. Yeah, um, it's Marty. So that kind of zany deconstructing comedy really appeals to kids, I suppose. Apart from anything else, you know, there's a lot of slapstick and and speeded up film in that in that Marty Feldman series. Yeah, and we all used to talk about that in the playground the next day. Um, at the same time, we were, I guess, I was seven or eight or nine, and we were watching um, "Do Not Adjust Your Sets," which was the kind of pre Python show that went out at uh, tea times on ATV and uh, we all loved that and and then Python Python itself came along and uh, went out pretty late at night I seem to remember so we didn't really um, didn't get much uh, of an opportunity to see that I think I mean in my memory the thing that suddenly made that show catch fire in the playground was the Spanish Inquisition sketch and somehow or other everybody in the playground the next day was going around saying nobody <laughs> expects the Spanish Inquisition so the only the only you know show in that vein from around that time that I missed out on I guess was Q5 which somehow which went out what in 1969 something like that and and passed passed me by completely it was um, weeks weeks before uh, Python began before the first first Python series that's Mm. right 
So, I mean, it occurs to me now that, that I, was at the, I was getting into comedy in a big way around about the time that Milligan, um, his influence was still very felt, uh, but he wasn't actually doing much himself in terms of uh, making new comedy, a, a, apart from uh, apart from Q5, which which I didn't see. So, you know, when I somehow started to become aware of his name, maybe through reading interviews with the Pythons or or stuff like that, in the early 1970s, the way to get into Spike Milligan really was was through books because that's you know he wasn't much on TV at the time. He was the goon shows weren't being repeated. But in my local bookshop, there were all these uh, Spike Milligan books, like a, a dustbin of Milligan, Little Pot Boiler, Book of Bits, or a bit of a book. I mean, I, I bought all of those. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, my, my first knowledge of him really was as a guy who wrote books, not as a radio comedian or a TV comedian. Mm-hmm. So when did you end up reading Pacoon? Um, well, there was kind of, there was a slight mythology around Pacoon at school, I remember this. I was at secondary school by then, so this was, I was uh, 11 or older. Yeah. And um, it was a book that grown-ups were reading. And I remember I had a friend at school who, whose dad had a copy. And uh, he'd said to, to my friend, he wouldn't like this, it's very adult humour. And... That kind of put me off for a long while because I thought, well, it must be, it must be full of very clever jokes or something, or it must be a very intellectual book. You know, I didn't realise that what he was actually telling his son, obviously, was that there were sex scenes in it, and you know, he didn't want him to read it for that reason. So I kind of, uh, I, I don't know, that phrase, adult humour. Mm. Um, I didn't know that that meant dirty jokes. To me, that made it made it sound like a difficult book. So I kind of stayed away from it for a while, and then. Um, Obviously, I must have I must have bought it. I don't uh, I don't remember the occasion and, and started reading it and immediately realised you know it was the that it was the best thing I'd uh, read by Spike Milligan by a long way and I absolutely fell in love with it. Was it the because I know that um, when I first read the book, having just grown up on a diet of the Goon Goon Show really, and, yeah, um, and I, and I read Pacoon unprepared for what it was going to be like, and. Um, Absolutely loved it, but what really impressed me was his attempt, which was successful, to introduce the himself into the actual narrative. Spike yeah. Milligan, Spike Milligan, the author, is a character in the book. Yeah, I mean, I you know at that stage I hadn't read uh, At Swim Two Birds by yeah. Fan O'Brien. Um, I don't know if that was an influence, a direct influence on Pacoon. There's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of overlaps there. I hadn't read uh, Tristan Shandy, hadn't heard about Tristan Shandy, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what uh, what Milligan was doing with the comic novel at that moment seemed completely uh, kind of new and original and and really, really exciting to me. Another thing that really struck me about it, and it struck me about it again when I reread it over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, I mean, I was reading Humphrey Carpenter's biography of Milligan and was amazed to read that Milligan hadn't been to Ireland when he wrote Pacoon, mm. um, because it has a fantastic sense of place, I think. I mean, maybe it's a kind of fantasy place and a, and a fantasy version of rural Ireland, but uh, it really stayed with me and really appealed to me. You know, for, for a long time, one of my one of my favourite scenes in books was just this kind of rather beautiful, idyllic uh, image of Dan Milligan Sitting down in the in the churchyard in the sunshine, one day with his this lunch that his his wife has made for him of what is it stout and bread and boiled potatoes or something, mm. just sounded wonderful to me. You know, just just a kind of great uh, lifestyle really, and uh, you know I think uh, you know the some of the descriptive passages in the book, like the opening paragraph, really are uh, you know really really well written. Um, you know, he was a he was a very uh, skilled writer of prose. I think. I get uh, I get the impression that he didn't have much of an education. He, as you know, he grew up in India. Yeah. And and I, from what I can gather, I think it was during the war and after the war that he kind of became. He he just started devouring books. 
and literature. You get, you get that impression because the vocabulary in, in Bakun is very, is very wide and in his other books, actually. Mm. And uh, it's, not, it's not erudite. He doesn't come across as a, uh, I guess what I would call as a bookish, a bookish writer. But, uh, you know, he understands words and he, knew, he knows how to use words. It's, uh, some of the writing is, is beautiful. Did you always want to be a writer? No, I, uh, I, I, it's peculiar. Uh, for, for a start, I was brought up in a household where there was only one book, uh, Robinson Crusoe. Uh, my father was a, a, an Irishman and a, a romantic, and uh, he was frightened of the world, and he escaped into this book, and he took me with him. Uh, it's the only book I ever read, and consequently, I've all my life been an island, sort of literary island. I, I've never, never been touched or tainted by outside literary efforts at all. I've, I've never read many books. I've never been to many plays, uh, nor have I seen many films. You know, so I'm rather a freak's the only word you can put on You've, me. Uh, F R E K, freak. <laughs> can we um, can we pause the recording for a second while I go let my cat in? Yeah, go for it. This could backfire on us, actually, because I'm actually alone in the house, and he's a very vocal cat. Oh, don't worry. So, that just um, adds a bit of colour. Adds fine. a bit of colour. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, if, uh, if, we, if Archie starts contributing to the discussion, then uh, that's who it is. Okay. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the experimental aspect of Pacoon, where, where we have the central character, Dan Milligan, speaking to the author, I mean, there's the, there's the whole scene with the legs where he's not happy with his legs yeah yeah um, such a great that's such a great scene <laughs> i reread a novel of yours i'm very i was very fond of um the terrible privacy of maxwell sim and I, oh, yeah i'd completely forgotten i mean it's a it's a more or less a, a relatively straightforward novel until you get right to the end i can hear out you by the way yeah um, yeah <laughs> until you get right to the end and then you turn up and yeah. I've forgotten about that. And was that, and I know obviously there were other influences that, that you can draw upon, but was that in any way um, hearkening back to Pakun? Um, yeah, I'm sure it was. I mean, I, I, I'd always wanted to do um, something a little bit like that, something a little bit like what, uh, what, what Milligan does in Pakun. Yeah. Um, and with, uh, the terrible privacy of Maxwell Sim, as far as I remember. That's right. I, I wrote out a very careful timeline for that. I think it's set in 2008 or something like that. I, yes, I, yes. I wrote down all the dates and where Maxwell was on each day. And uh, one day, I think he's at an airport. And I suddenly realized that I was at uh, Heathrow Airport on the same day in real life. And mm -hmm. I thought that's a weird coincidence. I could have, I could have seen him. And as soon as I thought of that, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe our paths should cross once or twice. So I think there's a reference to the fact that he, that I, the author and the hero Maxwell see each other at that airport very briefly um, early on in the book. And then I kind of took that up and ran with it in the final chapter where, where yes, in a, in a very um, Milligan-esque way, I turn up at the end and kind of, it's, it's the same sort of relationship, I think, now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Pakun end with Dan Milligan dangling from a tree and he says to the narrator, you can't leave me like this. And the narrator just says, oh, can't I? And, and kind of walks off and that's, that's the end it. of the book. Ten years of journey to their end and Pakun once again was lost in its unhurried ways. The church was restored by a rich Catholic. Father Rudden found faith in a new pair of boots. The mute steeple clock once again ticked out with a new life. and The border posts were never rebuilt. And to this very day, no one is quite sure exactly where the border lies. In fact, each and every character in the picture returned to his or her own ways, all except one man. A Roman soldier hanging from a tree with a rusty organ pipe lodged over his head. From where came a muffled voice. You can't leave me like this. Oh, can't I? That's um, it, which that's is exactly last... what happens at the end of Maxwell's Sim, because the author says, you know, Maxwell says, how does it end? And the author clicks his fingers and says, like this. And that's, uh, that's, it. that's it. Maxwell yeah. is gone. So, uh, yeah, 
that's true. It's a very uh, it's a very pecunish ending to the book. Another thing that happened in the early 1970s, around 72, 73, I think, was that they started actually publishing Goon's show scripts, yes. which had not been uh, available before. Uh, again, it all starts with Monty Python, I suppose, because that's what we were all obsessed with. But, um, you know, I loved, I loved the Python books. I loved uh, the Little Red Book in particular. Yeah. And, and the Milligan books like, uh, like the Dustbin, the Little Pot Boiler, struck me as being in that vein. And again, I, I picked up the, the Goon Show script book, uh, the first one in the bookshop, and just loved the feel of it and the look of it, really, and, the, you know, the cartoons and the way the scripts were laid out and this kind of thing. Mm. And uh, again, my, it was on the written, it was on the printed page. It was through the written word that my introduction to, to the world of the Goons came because you couldn't hear the shows uh, back then, I don't think, unless you bought the... Uh, unless you bought the albums. Yeah. Um, it was, I think, in the mid-70s that the BBC actually started repeating a few of the episodes, probably for the first time since they'd, since they'd gone out, I guess. Well, they'd, be been, right? they'd, been, they'd been sporadic uh, episodes played on the radio yeah. over the, you know, the 60s into the, into the 70s, but it was more or less not given up on, but or forgotten about exactly, but it was, it was the the um, last goon show of all. Yeah, um, I remember that. Uh, I remember that coming on and being talked about as a big event. And I didn't really understand what the, what the fuss was about or who these people were, <laughs> except that I could see that, you know, one of them was that guy, Spike Milligan, whose books I like. And then the goons appeared on Parkinson, I think, around about the same time. That's right. Quite a yeah. famous uh, interview. And again, uh, I recognize Peter Sellers because he was a movie star. Harry Seacombe because he sang on television, um, and Milligan because he he wrote these books that I love. That was the that was my view of him. That he was you know he was a writer. Mm. Did you grow up watching Sellers much in films? Uh, well, any old uh, British comedy film that came up onto TV, I would I would watch and uh, kind of pounce upon. So uh, yeah, I would have seen him in I'm All Right, Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have seen him in um, Only Two Can Play. Uh, hadn't seen Doctor Strangelove at that point. Um, Pink Panther film came around on TV periodically, but it was it was those, you know, those films of his from the late fifties, early sixties. There was a prison one as well, wasn't there? Was he in Two Way Stretch? Two Way Stretch, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which uh, which is great, and which is the forerunner of Porridge in, in so many ways. It is. It is. Um, and then, uh, well, an, another very vivid memory from from the uh, early seventies, mid seventies, I guess, because it was nineteen seventy five. Um, again, I don't think I'd heard a goon show at this point. Perhaps I had heard one or two, mm. um, but um, but I'd read I'd read all the scripts in the, in the the published books because I'd bought the book of the goons by then as well. Oh yeah, which also had some scripts in. And then I went to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the uh, the cinema, and this supporting feature came on, and it was the case of the Muckinese Battle Horn, yes. and I thought, my God, this is a this is a goon show, yes. in the cinema, and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe. I mean, seeing Monty Python and the Holy Grail for the first time was one of the most joyous experiences of my life. I think certainly in the in the nineteen seventies, but to have it uh, prefaced by this, to me, completely unknown film. Which was so uh, was so funny and also so kind of quite quite kind of eerie and atmospheric. I I felt when I when I saw it in the cinema for the first time, and so unexpected. Uh, that yeah. that was beautiful, and to see you know to see uh, Sellers playing Grip Type Thin and uh, and Milligan playing Eccles and this kind of thing. It was just it was just glorious. I don't know how Dick Emery wound up in that film. I don't know why it was him and not. Seacom. I'm sure there's a story behind that. There is. I mean, the the, the official story is Seacom. Seacom was too expensive. Uh, oh, right. Very low budget. <laughs> uh, but I think he was otherwise engaged. And Dick Emery had had um, been at a few goon shows as a you know as a guest when. Oh, right. W- when one or one of them was ill or whatever, he'd turn up and deputise. Um, a great no, but, forerunner of uh, the Naked Gun films, I think. Yes. Uh, it, yeah, it is. But but um, it's it's the most successful transfer of 
goon humor to scream i think it's fair to say well i saw um i started watching down among the Z men on tv the other day because it was on <laughs> it was on talking pictures over the weekend and that's a, that's a tough watch i have to say mm. um mm. and i have a dvd uh of penny points to paradise is that the, that the that's title right. yes uh which i've never watched i don't know is that worth my while uh it's a curio it's an interesting it's a curio yeah Yeah. Uh, none of them would particularly none of those early 50s goon short films or films really managed to capture the the well never managed to capture anywhere like no anywhere near the 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 uh, humor of the the radio shows no the thing Um, that puzzles me about down down among the zed men is you know the show itself on the radio had only been going kind of a few months by then hadn't it it seems uh, about seemed, a year about a year something like that seems odd that they were already making a kind of feature film from it but well it was i think it was the guy that produced it i think it was some there was tax it was a tax write-off or something there was okay some, it was something like that it was yep. uh one of what they used to call the quota quickies you know right um, yep well um, it was certainly it certainly looks quick <laughs> yeah and it's not i mean it, it was a, it was it wasn't <laughs> It could have been any comedy troupe, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice to see Michael Bentine. I believe it was someone who said, stone walls do not the prison make, nor the iron bars the cage. They look, look into the mirror. Because <laughs> I guess that's one of the few records of his participation, isn't it? But Yeah, there's, there's I mean, there's, there's about three goon shows that are terrible quality just in terms of record, recorded quality that were recorded mm. back when the show was broadcast in the early 50s there's three benting goon shows existent as far as i know oh, right, and okay. um and they're not very good in general they're not very good in general the benting doesn't come out of the goon history particularly well there's no strong uh, record if you like of, yeah. of his participation in the show yeah it wasn't really until series five so we're talking 1954 into 55 that it it it, it moved up again became the show that we recognize today you, you mentioned about the goon show scripts and you'd read the, the scripts before you'd even heard a goon show uh when you were reading those scripts were you visualizing because you've never heard the show were you visualizing these characters were you what, what what were you thinking in your head in terms of who these characters were um well i i uh you know i, I haven't had copies of those books for for decades but mm. my memory is there were cartoon drawings of the characters, yeah, possibly right. by by Milligan. Is that right? By all of them. So they would draw. By all of them. They, they they would draw on their scripts while they were rehearsing. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, paradoxically, I did have a visual image of them, but I didn't know what they sounded like. Um, mm. I mean, I think I I had uh, seen clips of the Last Goon Show of all or or the Parkinson interview or something. So I so I knew. Kind of knew what Eccles sounded like. I think Mike Spike Milligan used to do that voice a lot, anyway. Yes. And I, I knew what Blue Bottle sounded like, but apart from that, you know, no idea what Crown or Mini sounded like or anything like that. Then again, I just I just remember another thing that brought the goons into our consciousness. For some reason, the Ying Tong song was reissued round about then and and charted. Mm, that's right. Uh, as a single, would that be seventy three something like that? think so yes yeah. so the glass goon show was 72 yeah and, and was such a success and that's what like you say they then started issuing the bbc started issuing commercial records lps of goon shows oh Ruff, right After rough, that, yeah. roughly one one lp a year right uh there had been there had been some lps released through emi in the 60s yep. of goon shows but they were edited the music was removed for rights reasons and things so they hadn't so yeah it was really post last goon show of all that i mean it was hardly goon mania but you know they they had a, yeah. a, a sudden lease of life again and so well, yeah, the, that must have appealed to me because i bought that single i i remember and uh mm. and preferred the b-side i seem to remember which was i'm walking backwards for christmas i think mm-hmm. um yeah so uh so again i had a kind of aural uh image of what uh, the goons sounded like through that song but uh, didn't really get to hear the shows until, as I said, the BBC started repeating them. Yeah, I think a couple of years later, and then I must have 
considered these to be kind of treasured cultural artifacts because very unusually for me although I was a comedy obsessive I didn't um I didn't record comedy shows off off the radio or off the tv onto my cassette player normally but I did record all those goon repeats and had a row of kind of C60s on my shelf oh, okay. I'd, I don't know about a dozen goon shows on them and uh and listen to those quite uh, quite frequently oh okay I think if I'm right I might be wrong here from memory I think there was a significant series of repeats in 75 yeah that, that's what I, that's what i would have heard i think uh were you i i would have i would have thought you'd have also been quite a fan of hancock were you um i am now uh mm. big big fan of hancock um he i mean again i guess there were records mm. of uh, re-recordings of some of the tv and radio shows around Everybody knew there was an episode called The Blood Donor and that was meant to be kind of famous and amazing. But I didn't have any of those records. And he wasn't repeated at all in the 70s, as far as I remember. Certainly not kind of series runs or anything like that. My my mum used to talk about him and say he was the best comic ever and uh, told me that he'd you know committed suicide in 67. And so I, I knew all that story. But I think it was a big uh, BBC documentary of, about Hancock in the early 80s on arena or one of those shows and that used a lot of long clips from the from the tv shows and that was really the first time i'd i'd seen them and uh that was when my hancock obsession started so he, he wasn't on my radar really uh in the 1970s even though you know in many ways he's behind all those great characters from the classic 70s sitcoms he's Yes, he's distantly behind Fletch and behind Grigsby and behind Reginald Perrin and and those kind of things. The uh, you know you can trace a lot of that back to uh, Hancock and Goldman Simpson. Yes, yeah, I was always more of a fan of Steptoe and Son, actually, when it comes to Goldman Simpson. Really? Yeah, yeah I I uh, no, I prefer Hancock myself. Okay. I like Steptoe, obviously, but uh, but Hancock really for me gets. Uh, He's the kind of fountainhead. Hey, sweet signore. Yes, thank you. There's a ravioli. More ravioli, <laughs> signore? Yes, it's very good, quite superb. But a ravioli is not a sweet signore. Try zabaglioni. Look, is a sweet. I want ravioli. I came here for a balanced three-course meal. Ravioli, ravioli, and ravioli. Is that clear? <laughs> si, signore. Ravioli, signore. Thank you. Mmm, that looks delicious. I'd always grown up on a diet of British comedy. My dad would always sit me down in front of the TV if there was a repeat, because I was you know, I grew up in the 80s. TVNZ was always repeating BBC and ITV sitcoms from yeah. the 70s particularly. And I remember very, very clearly the anticipation, and I'd never even heard of it until my my father had told me its name. He said, there's this program that they're repeating. This must have been when I was about eight, something mm. like that. He said, they're repeating this program, and it's wonderful, and I want you to watch it. And I, I think back now, I think, good God, you know, that was quite something to put on, eight, on an eight-year-old. He said, it's called The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. Mm. He, he said, you'll love it because he always thinks about, he always thinks about his mother-in-law as a hippopotamus. Right. And so I had all these, I was developing all these images in my head as to what this sitcom would be like, what this program would be like. And, um, and he and I would, he and I watched it when it was, you know, repeated the whole series. I absolutely adored. Funny enough, I never, I never got into Rising Damp because they never repeated that when I was growing up. Yeah. But, yes. I mean, so much depends on what actually yeah. got shown got shown back then you know I, I was thinking this with with hancock that although there were no hancock episodes shown during the 70s as far as i remember you used to get the rebel on 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 tv in mm. you know fairly frequently so this kind of slightly unrepresentative not quite as good as the tv shows feature film is what we all saw of tony hancock yes yeah. um and uh and yeah if you know if if rising damp isn't repeated then you just don't don't get to see it i suppose i always find i think personally that reginald perrin is the superior rossiter sitcom uh, mm. 
I know that David Nobbs became a big influence on you. Yeah, and uh, specifically on uh, the terrible prophecy of Maxwell Sim, again, I think, which has a, a kind of epigraph from Reginald Perrin, I think somewhere in the, at, at the beginning of the book, the line about, you know, he didn't know the names of the birds and the flowers, but he knew the rhubarb crumble sales figures for Cheswick Holstein or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and also, and also I, I did pick up, I'm sure you... I'm sure you put it in deliberately to to see who would pick up on it. I did pick up that there was a reference to a Martin Wellborn and his wife Elizabeth. Yes, I think there is. I think you're right. Henry, Henry, this is Martin Wellborn, an old friend of Reg's. I'm sure you two will get on like a house on fire. How do you do? It's like shaking hands with a warm mullet. <laughs> Congratulations on your engagement, Mr. Fawcett. Oh, thank you. But uh, please. Elizabeth and I are trying to keep it a secret. It wouldn't be seemly to announce it yet, with Reggie still practically warm. Uh, no, quite. Not with Reggie still practically warm, no. And I think there are two characters in it called, instead of called, uh, yes. instead of being called Tony Webster and David Harris-Jones, I think they're called Tony Webster and David... Um, David Webster and Tony Harris-Jones. David Webster and Tony Harris-Jones, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, obviously there's a, there's a big crossover between the absurdist trend in David Nobbs's humour and the goons which uh, I mean funnily enough I don't think I ever had a conversation with David about uh, about Spike Milligan with it, but we didn't have to in a way I mean you could tell what a big influence he was on him um, David spoke a lot about N.F. Simpson yep. the uh, the British absurdist playwright who again uh, you know there must must be all sorts of points of contact between the things he was doing in the in the late 50s at the Royal Court and uh and what spike milligan was doing at the time um i mean it would be an interesting uh phd thesis really how how the goons cross over into so-called high culture i guess because there are uh you know there are overlaps 20 years ago i i published a long biography of the british experimental writer bs johnson um, who wrote a series of uh, very kind of radical avant-garde novels in the in the nineteen sixties? And when I was going through his archive uh, at his widow's house as part of the research for writing the book, I was I was amazed to find that he wrote goon show scripts himself in the nineteen fifties and submitted them to the BBC. Um, and in fact, I think if you go to the B.S. Johnson archive at the British Library, you can read the script. It's called the Welsh Harp, Great Welsh Harp Abduction Mystery. Oh wow! Really? Okay. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty good actually. It's it's pretty good. You could you could almost have broadcast it and passed it off as a as a Milligan script. Uh, wow. He co-wrote it with a friend of his who had a who had a much kind of zanier sense of humour, I think, than Johnson himself did. But uh, but it's wound up in his archive at the BL anyway. I actually, I mean, I haven't read any B.S. Johnson. I, I was aware of the fact you'd you'd written a book years ago. But I did find something that you wrote about B.S. Johnson several years ago. You, you, you wrote, sitting down to begin your first novel with the rhythms of Joyce Beckett, Flann O'Brien and Lawrence Stern swimming around your head. Eight years listening to The Goon Show, having thrown wide open the doors of possibility onto all manner of playful deconstruction. What cause did Johnson have to resent the conventions of the traditional novel? So, oh, so okay. uh, yeah. So, is that from the biography or is that from something else? That's from an article that you wrote about oh, okay. B.S. Johnson. So, yeah, so there, um, the, you're drawing comparisons there with obviously The Goon Show, you've, you've you mentioned Flann O'Brien, Lawrence Stone, you, you, you mentioned with regards to well, obviously Tristram Shandy, um, which I tried to read and I got about halfway through and then I'm afraid I abandoned <laughs> it. <laughs> um, not for the purposes of this interview, by the way. I, years yeah. ago, um, the Black Page fascinated me strangely. Yep. Which, uh, which B.S. Johnson took and, and used uh, kind of a completely direct borrowing in his first novel, um, Travelling People, which has a character called Henry Henry, who is very much a kind of uh, Dan Milligan figure, really. Um, would he have read Pacoon? Uh, well, not by then, because it was published in 63, wasn't it? But... Um, uh, he, you know, there is there is a lot of Milligan-esque humour in in that book in particular. It kind of it kind of bleeds out of his writing a bit as he starts taking himself uh, a bit more seriously as his career goes on. 
but his his early books are, are pretty funny and Milliganesque. I can't see the name B.S. Johnson without thinking it's Boris Johnson. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know if you yeah, know. I, I, I've noticed a lot of people. Uh, this, this is most people's reaction. I can't see the name Boris Johnson without thinking of B.S. Johnson, but that's uh, right. <laughs> that's just uh, that's just my peculiarity. I think for the purposes of a podcast I was going to record a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the film The Great McGonagall, mm, which I've never seen actually. Oh right, you've never seen it. Okay. I've never seen it, uh, which I must do something about, because um, I don't know. Did that film even get released? I, I don't. It's from seventy four, isn't it? I think, and uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't certainly don't remember it uh, doing the rounds of the cinemas in uh, in Birmingham and Bromsgrove where I was uh, growing up. But I think I think it was just impossible or very difficult to see for a long time. I know. Well, it was. Yeah, everything is kind of easy to see now. Is it on YouTube? Uh, it is, but a very, very poor transfer. Um, right. The DVD is not much better. It was like um, filmed on a very low budget, and then the film was passed through the <laughs> digestive system of a hippo or something. You know, literally dark and very difficult to make out a lot of the dialogue. Um, right. The only reason I brought that up, and, and I must admit, and no offence to, to the wonderful Joe McGrath, the director, but he he does have a tendency sometimes to get things wrong, but he <laughs> but he he supplied a director's commentary or commentary for the film. Yeah, and he mentioned you by name. Oh, okay, <laughs> and he said that, and he's obviously thinking of someone else. But he said that you wrote to him because there's a scene in the Great McGonagall where it looks like, where to all intents and purposes, it's like a like a blooper, like you know, um, Milligan has dried during some dialogue. Yeah, and, and needs a prompt. Can't get the the um, the line right mm-hmm. to the extent that they keep doing take after take, and we're seeing them do this. And we've got Joe McGrath, the director, coming actually onto the screen and uh, giving guidance and giving advice. And uh, it it does look genuinely like it's a foul up. On yeah, you know, but they've kept it in the film for some reason. Just no, like, he stopped because he laughed that time. Yeah, yeah but it's not. Don't repeat it again. Oh, sorry. Okay. Don't, don't, you're just confusing the issue, John. Sorry, sorry, love. Sorry. I repeat what he says. Yeah. After he says tomorrow. Right. Right. Okay. Right. right. Okay. Shall we say? Well, you didn't say action. But the the point is, Joe McGrath said that you wrote to him about that scene, wondering if it was scripted or it was genuine, and he said uh, the answer is it was scripted. Okay, so I've, oh, that really? is a well, mystery. That's... That's that's an interesting answer, even though I didn't ask him the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I'm I'm never having asked that question. I'm now interested to hear the answer. So that's uh, <laughs> that's good. What do you think? Um, Who would you I mean, think of? William Boyd? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's always he's always writing to comedy directors asking them questions like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I you know, uh. That's exactly the kind of scene which I've always imagined that film is full of. Mm. And, uh, you know, again, this is what makes um, Milligan such an interesting figure because, you know, a year or so earlier, Lindsay Anderson was doing that, you know, Lucky Man. Oh, yeah, great film. Where at the end, where at the mm. end of the film, Malcolm McDowell confronts the director and Anderson slaps him across the face and this kind of thing. And uh, you're right, it's an, abs- it's an absolutely great uh, film. But, of course, everyone... Kind of bows down, and says, "This is art. This is postmodernism. This is kind of such a such a radical way to end this this art movie." And then you've got Milligan and Sellers just kind of clowning around with Joe McGrath, coming up with the same stuff, really. And you know what they're doing is kind of in its improvised, throwaway sort of way, equally bold and equally inventive, I think. And uh, you know, certainly. That was the aspect that really appealed uh, to me as a as a teenager when I was discovering his writing and uh, discovering the the goon shows and this kind of thing. Just this sort of irreverent and and the sense that you can break the fourth wall and the the, the boundaries, the, the formal requirements of a of a radio show or a novel are actually kind of porous and wide open, and you can do whatever you like. Yeah, and uh, you know when when I did a few years later discover Tristan Shandy and uh, Flann O'Brien and so on, um, these writers really excited me, but they weren't a revelation because Spike Milligan had already done all that as far as I was concerned. 
the war memoirs. Yeah. Um, did you have you read? I know you read Adolf Hitler, my partner's downfall. Have you read the others? Uh, I read Adolf Hitler and I read Rommel Gunner Who. Okay. And then uh, for some reason I stopped. Um, I don't. I don't know why. Um, I think I. I just kind of. Uh, you know, I, I was moving on to different kinds of writers yeah. at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what I must emphasize is that for the first half of the seventies, my bookshelf in my bedroom was just comedy books. There were no other mm. kinds of books. I had the Python books. I had Morton Wise books. I had Dick Emery books. I had uh, Ronnie Barker's. Uh, slightly kind of creepy books of seaside postcards and <laughs> yeah. Victorian soft porn erotica and that kind of thing. Mm. And I had rows and rows of uh, Milligan and, and Goon Show books. And, and at some point in the kind of second half of the 70s, I must have become a little bit embarrassed by this and decided it was time to get my act together. And I, I sold or disposed of most of them. And from then on, I was kind of reading serious writers or what I thought were serious writers for 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 uh, a while uh, of course i regret this now because i'd love to uh, i'd love to have copies of most of those books again but i did read um i don't remember much about Rommel gonna who but i uh read adolf hitler my partner's downfall and have been rereading it again over the last uh, few days and uh even though what almost 50 years have gone by since i since i read it I'm, i was amazed by how vividly i remembered it and how many of the jokes mm. I've kind of stayed in my mind, you know, the Armageddon out of here, these uh, these kind of wonderful uh, word plays that he uses. And uh, I've actually been listening to it on audiobook. I don't know when he recorded that, but of course it's the best way to, it to is, experience yeah. it. I think it's it's great to hear him reading it himself and and cracking up at his own uh, at his own humour. It's a very endearing uh, sound. Spike was often his biggest fan <laughs> when it came yeah. to his own material. Yeah. I haven't read much uh, literature of the Second World War from that point of view, from the point of view of the kind of ordinary enlisted soldier. I mean, I, I would have thought these were historically very valuable books because you really uh, get taken inside that barrack room and, and have a strong sense of the, you know, the texture of day-to-day life and what's going on and how people used humour to survive. Um, you know, uh, the kind of incredibly interesting from that point of view, quite apart from being so funny. Well, I gather, I gather they were among the first of the those Second World War memoirs where it was authentic lang- you know, language that they would have used in the in the soldier's mess, in the barracks. In the, yeah. He didn't polish it up. He didn't dress it up. It was, no. it was quite earthy and crude. And, uh, and I think yeah, it, and shocked, I, it shocked a few people at the time. Yeah, I think, I think it did. And again, I remember... Um, you know, my, my parents being a little, little disapproving of the fact that I was reading it. And, you know, they'd obviously heard that there was a lot of salty language in it and, and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I get a strong sense that in writing Pakunan in writing those books for that reason, because of the freedom that the printed page allows you, it was a very, must've been a very liberating thing for Spike Milligan because, uh, you know, there was very very severe limits, I would have thought, on what he could get away with in, in the goon show itself. Mm. And then suddenly, particularly writing the kind of sex passages in, in Pacoon and so on, you can he could let rip. And he did. And again, you know, another thing that novel writing enabled him to do is the tonal range. And that struck me very much when I first read Pacoon. You know, there's, there's an extraordinary digression into the story of Omara. Uh, who's who? Who marries the kind of uh, this girl who sleeps around and uh, ends up getting custody of the children? And she comes around and cuts their throats in the middle of the night, and then ends up in a in an asylum, staring at the wall, staring at the wall, staring at the wall. I mean, I remember reading that, and uh, you know, this was before I read the novel *The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perry* or, or *Catch 22*, which was another big influence mm. on me on the seventies. That was a kind of shock. I, where I, where I thought, oh, hang on, so there's this form, is there? There's the novel where you can go from kind of slapstick comedy to terrible tragedy like this on the same page. That's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah. dis- disturbing and kind of disorientating as well in, in some ways, but that was, uh, that was quite revelatory to me. And again, Bakun was the first 
because I wasn't reading so-called serious novels at the time, um, Pacoon was the first intimation to me that you could, you know, you could do that in a novel. It was, it was that flexible. Yeah, because I'm thinking in your novels, The Rotters Club in particular, um, which I reread over lockdown, I reread that and um, The Closed Circle. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, The Rotters Club is, it's got this very, very affecting scene. Um, so it's the, is it the 74 Birmingham pub, pub bombings? Yeah. Yeah. Where, and I, I forg- forgive me, I, for- I forget, it, it's Benjamin's sister goes with her yeah, new boyfriend. Yeah, sister goes, Lois goes with her boyfriend Malcolm to the uh, the tavern in the town mm. where he proposes to her just at the moment that the uh, the bomb goes off. Whereas the what rest of the novel is, not the rest of the novel, but much of the novel is light. and, and, and Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, well, the, the, the beginning of that for me was writers like, like Milligan and David Nobbs in uh, in the Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, where you have this. Sometimes it's a balance. Sometimes it's a collision, actually, of uh, of comedy and melancholy or tragedy. Um, because the the novel of the Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which was written before the TV series, mm. uh, you know, David really. Um, softened a lot of the novel and toned it down quite a bit to to turn it into a primetime BBC One sitcom. And the second half of the book in particular is kind of desperately sad in parts and kind of quite disturbing. And, um, you know, I my memory is that I watched the first three or four episodes of the TV series first um, and then discovered that there was a book as well, and uh, and bought that immediately and read it. And from, so the second half of the series broadcast, I was kind of following it and comparing it to the book in my mind and thinking, oh, he's he's you know he's taken it in a much lighter direction here. But it was always, I mean, I love the TV show, but it's always the novel that uh, I go back to and and recommend to people. And and you know, I think it's it's one of the great. Uh, novel for the 1970s really and isn't isn't recognized as such because it was also uh, a successful sitcom but it's I mean to me it's as you know it's it's up there with Kingsley Amis and David Lodge and the other mm-hmm. kind of uh, giants of the of the 1960s 1970s comic novel I've just on you've mentioned Kingsley Amis um Martin Amis um he introduced a character called Martin Amos into was it Money? He, yeah, there is a character called Martin Amos in Money. Yeah, that's right. Did, were you influenced by Martin Amos at all? Um, not influenced. No, I mean, I I actually read his started reading him uh, kind of much later in my writing career, and uh, okay. I liked liked a lot of his books very much. Right. I kind of uh, I kind of resisted because when I was really getting into my stride as a writer in, in the mid eighties when, um, you know, when I wrote the first of my books that actually got published because there were three or four which never got published. Then everybody was reading Money by Martin Amos and telling me that I had to read Money mm. by Martin Amos. And when people tell me that I have to read something or I have to read something, then I'm, I'm afraid I don't watch it or read it. I'm a bit kind of childish like that. So, um, so I didn't read Money for a long time uh, after it was published. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a, there is a character in it called uh, Martin Amos, and the, the, there are a lot of these uh, B.S. Johnsony, Flann O'Brieny, Spike Milligany things going on, I suppose. Yeah, you know the story about his old man when he first read Money, or the, or the first and only time he read Money. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that I do. Um, Tell so, it me anyway. So Kingsley Amos, of course, was a irascible old swine, really, yeah. wasn't he? Um, and didn't have time for for pretentious puffery or whatever. Um, and he, he, he uh, I don't think he was that impressed by a lot of Martin's earlier work, certainly. Yeah. And apparently he was halfway through money and this character walks into a bar and the character's introduced as Martin Amos. Apparently Kingsley Amos just threw the book across the room in disgust. <laughs> And I don't think he picked it up again. <laughs> well, I, I only ever read Kingsley Amos because I knew he was the author of uh, 
the novel that Only Two Can Play was based on. So, you know, it was it was Peter Sellers who got me into Kingsley Amos. That's a good, uh, the, I think the novel was that, that Uncertain Feeling, wasn't it? Yep, which uh, I haven't read all that much Kingsley Amos. I've read, uh, certainly read that in Lucky Jim, and I kind of prefer that Uncertain Feeling, actually. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, I, I really enjoy Lucky Jim. But anyway, um, I just wanted to, because I'm conscious of the time, Jonathan, I don't, don't want to keep yep. you much longer. I just wanted to very quickly, while I've got you, um, please indulge me. I rewatched the other night, knowing I was going to be speaking to you, I rewatched The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Ah. Which I know that you have over the years, many, many years, many years, developed a sort of an overwhelming obsession with, <laughs> I guess it's fair to say. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people, uh, people who are nice about my books and about my writing generally, one of one of the nice things they say about it is they say it's all so different. Uh, but actually, to me, it, you know, everything that I've written starts in some way or other with something I became obsessed with in the mid nineteen seventies. Mm. Uh, whether it's whether it's Pacoon, whether it's Reginald Perrin or whether it's uh, Billy Wilder's film, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which I first saw on TV, uh, I think in 75 or 76 uh, on a BBC One broadcast. And again, found this kind of uh, blend of, of comedy and melancholy existing in a, in this case, slightly uneasy relationship because the film was kind of hacked to bits by, by its editor and cut down from three hours to two hours and so on. And uh, I think the balance would have been much more e uh, even and assured in the in the director's cut, but mm. the two-hour version is what we have. And uh, yeah, I, I just love this way that for the first half hour, this film makes you, or made me at the time, roar with laughter, and then suddenly you're into this very involving detective story for the next hour, and then for the last half hour, suddenly it's it's all kind of tragedy and melancholy and and thwarted romance and. I just found that a really uh, kind of beautiful uh, mixture. Absolutely, yeah. Um, anyone who's listened to this who hasn't seen it, it's a Billy Wilder film from 1970. Didn't make any money, but it's it's really well worth seeking out. And uh, it's I'm got... trying to think if there's any possible uh, goon show connection between how how can we draw a connection yeah. between Private Life? Well, there's Vic Queen Victoria appears in it, I suppose. But oh, not, I can tell you, I can tell you, a direct not connection. played by Peter Sellers. No, not played by Peter Sellers. I can tell you a direct connection. Mrs. Okay. Hudson is played by the Irene Handel. Irene Handel. And Irene yeah. Handel worked regularly with Sellers. She was Mrs. Fred Kite. She was. Yep. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, brilliant performance. Uh, Colin, Colin Blakely, I think, and I want to take issue with, because I've, I've read that you think that Colin Blakely is a bit too vocal and strident in his performance as Watson. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, I think that must have been something I wrote many, many years ago. I, I think he's, these days, I think he's perfect. There you are. You wretch! You mutter! You blackguard! Of all the vile, unspeakable fabrications! What do you have to say for yourself? Well, don't just sit there! Speak your mind! <sighs> Well, listen, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time out of your, because, you know, you've, you've got a book getting published very, very soon. So your diary will be filling up with uh, uh, interviews and whatnot. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. And, well, it's uh, always uh, nice to talk about uh, comedy. You know, I mean, people ask me about my literary influences and I kind of scratch my head and, and try to think of uh, the names of the writers who did influence me but really you know none of them did as as strongly as people like uh, David Nobbs and Spike Milligan and Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet and Golden Simpson who were writing uh, you know TV and radio comedy that's where that's really what started me writing even though I wound up as a novelist yes so it's yeah, great to yeah. go back to uh, to my source as I think of it Yes. And I just want to say to anyone listening to this who, who haven't, shame on you if you haven't, but anyone who hasn't read any of your novels, I would recommend uh, What a Carve-Up. Uh, what a Carve-Up is obviously taken from the name of a, a, a Sid James film, Kenneth Connor film. 
um, yep. which I think you saw on TV in 1990 or something, didn't you? And you just kind of squirreled that away for, for future use. Yeah, that's uh, right. It, it it was followed by a terrible kind of semi-sequel called What a Whopper. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, which features Spike Milligan as a park yeah. keeper. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, but that, but that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic novel. Um, very, very funny, very satirical, shall we say. Uh, the Rotters Club, for sure. Terrible Privacy of Max Wilson. And, um, and Bourneville, when it comes out. Um, you know, I should be trotting down to Waterstones to collect my copy on the day of publication. Thank you very much. I'm glad, really glad to hear it. That's been great fun. Thanks again to Jonathan. Just after we recorded, he messaged me to say, how could we miss the most obvious goons stroke private life of Sherlock Holmes connection? Sellers was supposed to play Watson, which is absolutely right. Um, alongside, I believe, Peter O'Toole as, as Sherlock Holmes. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, myself and a returning guest are going to be casting a critical eye over that movie that Jonathan and I were talking about, the highly challenging art house film, The Great McGonagall from 1974. See you soon. Bye.